we had a month-long retreat on Maui. And on the opening day, day, we invited one of the Hawaiian elders to come to initiate that retreat for us. And he talked about the spirit of aloha. And aloha is a very Hawaiian word. It means hello, goodbye, love. And it means I share my breath with you. And he talked about the spirit of aloha really being the flowering of each of us. The process that we all are on in this life on this earth. And that this process is really done through and with the spirit of aloha. We are here practicing aloha. Loving kindness, openness, patience, tolerance. And we use the most challenging of objects in our development of aloha or love, each other. It's maybe easier to use trees and sunsets and stars and but we human beings seem to be the most challenging for each other but if we understand that metta or loving kindness is primarily an attitudinal relationship to all the conditions of our life rather than a relationship only to a specific person, then we can uh, understand our practice here in a broader context. We find many reasons and ways to shut down to our life, to close down, to turn away, to deny, to refuse to deal with the actual conditions of our life. And this practice that we have undertaken confronts all of those ways that we shut down, that we turn away. Metta is the antidote to aversion in all of its forms. And aversion manifests most noticeably as hatred, anger, but subtly as disappointment, frustration, fear, guilt. In this practice, many of you in the few days that we've been here have begun to notice that even though the intention is to wish for the well-being of ourselves and others, that more often than not, or equally as often, we find frustration, disappointment, fear, anger, irritation, impatience with ourselves, with the person that we're trying to send metta towards. It's not because we're doing something wrong. Please understand that the practice of metta is a purification. 
it purifies our hearts and minds of everything that is not metta. And so in order to purify, in order to let go of that which is not metta, we must see it. And so your experiences today, yesterday, today, and throughout the rest of the retreat, of difficulty, of irritation, of frustration, of disappointment, of anger, and all of that, is a sign that the practice is working. We're actually bringing into view those tendencies, or as Kamala mentioned, those cow paths in the mind, that easy recourse to impatience that has kept us isolated from each other and from most of our life. So it's not because we're doing something wrong that we feel irritated and frustrated. But when we do feel these obstructions, when they appear in the mind, when we see them, it is a challenge and it is a practice to work with them. So tonight I want to talk about a few of my experiences in dealing with these difficulties and this gradual flowering of aloha or metta that we're all on. I like to understand metta as being the ability to appreciate things, people, events, conditions, as they are. To see them as they truly are. Not to demand that they perform or be or expect them to be the way I want them to be. But to try to see them, to attune myself to their conditions, another being's conditions, and to approach our relationship with some sensitivity, some care, and some nurturing, if at all possible. Years ago, when I was first trying to establish a daily practice, of mindfulness, I would get up an hour before I had to get ready for work. And this was early in the morning. And I was living at that time in a household where we had a cat. And the cat went out in the evenings and it came in in the mornings. So I would get up, do my 45 minutes or an hour of sitting, and then hurry down to the kitchen to get my breakfast to get off to work in time. And as soon as I got to the kitchen, the cat was at the front door, scratching and meowing and jumping onto the door, wanting to get in. And I was in a hurry to get my breakfast and get my lunch made and get off to work, but the cat was driving me crazy. So I let it in. And then it wouldn't leave me alone. You know how cats are when they come in, they want a little attention, and so they, they find a way to put themselves underneath the foot that is about to step on the floor. 
you know, and they're just constantly there. So I had to feed the cat. So this cat <laughs> destroyed my practice every day. <laughs> Somehow I ended up being irritated and impatient and uh, aggravated with this cat. And then I realized, well, this is not so skillful. Why don't I make feeding the cat a practice? It's so simple for those of you who love cats. <laughs> for me, it's a practice. <laughs> So I invited the cat in and give it a little attention, connect with it from where it's coming from, you know, all night alone, outdoors, taking care of itself. Pick up the bowl, clean out the bowl of yesterday's leftovers, reach for the can of cat food and open it up, smelling that wonderful <laughs> aroma. This is, this is why it's a practice, you know. <laughs> 6.30 in the morning, cat food and... But I made it a practice to really be connected to that cat where it was coming from. That cat taught me a lot. Or I should say that practice taught me a lot. I use the phrase, may you be free of hunger. <laughs> you know, a little, a little timely, loving attention really goes a long ways for setting your day off on the right foot. Just a little, I mean, and a cat is satisfied with just a can of cat food and a couple of pets, and it will leave you alone. All it required was that I come out of my self-absorbed isolation. That I stop defending myself against connecting with the world in my life. And that's all that Metta asks of us. Stop defending yourself against feeling the life which you're living get connected to it, open to it, give it a little loving attention, and things go so smoothly. Impatience melts in the face of such care, such nurturing. Our life is this vast web of interconnection, of relationships. None of us live in isolation. Not even the hermit in some isolated cave off in Tibet or Nepal or someplace. They live intimately connected. We live intimately connected with each other. Love asks us to open to that and to care about those connections. To care about that web of life that holds us. 
So this practice of metta is really a practice of opening, connecting with our life, and seeing the way things are, seeing truly the conditions of those other beings that we share this world with, and then responding openly with a feeling of care and connection, nurturing. But sometimes that demands of us that we see beyond the behaviors that such beings are engaged in. And we have to see something deeper in them. Here we talk about the proximate cause of metta being seeing the good, seeing the good actions, thoughts, behaviors, qualities in beings. Sometimes that's hard to see. Nevertheless, we do have to cultivate within ourselves an appreciation for beings as beings, independent of their actions. Developing metta is really a passionate valuing of another's life. In, 19, in 1988, I was in Burma, and I'd been there for a few years, living in a monastery, and I was doing intensive meditation like this, mostly Vipassana, but sometimes Metta. And in the spring of 1988, the dictator that had ruled Burma for about 30 years, Ne Win, announced that he was going to step down. And the population of the, the local people of the country went wild. They were ecstatic. They just thought, finally, after 30 years of this brutal dictatorship, we're going to get freedom. We're going to get democracy. We're going to get some sort of uh, open political system. And so they, in expressing their enthusiasm and their exuberance, they were... were uh, stopped work and went on strike and just started marching in the streets. They were really extraordinary. They were really happy. It was, it was a wild time to be in Burma. And for about six weeks, they just gathered this tremendous momentum for some sort of uh, political change. And there were up to a million people a day marching in front of the U.S. Embassy in downtown Rangoon. And where I was staying was on the outskirts of Rangoon, but still there were thousands, tens of thousands of people marching past the monastery daily. And it was at this time that Aung San Suu Kyi gave her first speech at the Shwedagon Pagoda, which so galvanized the movement for democracy in Burma. But even though it was a very heady and excited and... Uh, exuberant time, there was considerable danger and fear and people didn't really know what was going to happen. So there was quite a lot of uncertainty and it felt volatile. 
When I would go on alms round, that's the morning walk in the suburbs around the monastery to collect my food for the day, I would see the effects of people's exuberance during the night. And it was easy to be happy for them. It didn't take anything to just allow myself to be really pulled into their enthusiasm and excitement and this sense of uh, impending yippee, whatever yippee it's going to be. But the U.S. Embassy had other ideas, and they called the monastery, and they said, you know, really, um, everybody ought to leave the country because we don't know what's going to happen. And a lot of people did leave the country because it was so um, volatile. But I, like Sharon, looking for the popular revolution, (laughs) got it, (laughs) and decided to stay. And then one night, we began to hear what seemed like celebrating, firecrackers and, you know, little cherry bombs and things going off. And it wasn't. It was machine guns and tanks and bombs. And in the matter of about three days, that popular uprising of everyone in the country was squashed. And there's some estimates of the numbers of people that were uh, disappeared. But it was a a terrifying time to be in Burma. You really did not know what was going to happen. And there was an edict passed that gatherings of five or more would be shot. No question. Just If you were five people sitting at a coffee shop, that was it. Goodbye. And it was happening. This wasn't just an idle threat. It was really happening. The, the generals that took over the country were extremely brutal. Well, there was a tremendous amount of terror and fear, a huge letdown, a disappointment, a frustration with the military situation, anger, resentment. It was just everywhere in the country. I couldn't do Vipassana at the time. It was just too painful. So I was doing metta. And I would go see my teacher and report to him how I was doing with all that I heard and could hear and the people that I would see and that would come to the monastery and tell us what was going on. And then after about three days, he said to me, and it really surprised me, he said, are you sending metta to the generals who took over the military? I said, no, of course not. Why, they're so brutal, you know, they're so nasty. How could I possibly send metta to them? They're just inhuman. And he said, you know, they just want to be happy, too. But because of ignorance in their mind, because there is such thick delusion and ignorance, they believe that what they're doing will bring happiness to them and others. They honestly believe that. I had a lot of doubt whether I could practice metta for such beings. Certainly I didn't approve of or condone their behavior, but I could see the logic behind Upandita's instruction that 
if these beings were truly happy, they wouldn't need to do what they were doing. So my practice of metta for them was really a sincere wish for them to be happy. With the understanding that if they truly were happy, they wouldn't need to do what they were doing. Now that understanding was vital to the practice that I undertook. Without that understanding, I couldn't, I mean, just you know, trying to be nice and kind and you know, uh, appreciative of those brutal be- behavior. Yeah, I couldn't do it. But with the understanding, I could. That understanding and our understanding of what we're actually doing with metta is vital and necessary to support our effort to continue. We have to remind ourselves, what is it that we're actually doing with metta practice? We are wishing another being to be happy. We're not prescribing what they have to do to be happy. We're not approving what it is that they're doing. We're just making a wish that they be happy, that they feel safe, that they be healthy, that they be free of emotional turmoil. In this case, free from fear. If these generals were free from fear, if they didn't mistrust everyone else in the country, it would be a completely different situation. We can wish that for them. But it's a challenge. We have difficult people in our lives. Maybe not as brutal as the dictators in in Burma, but nevertheless, we do have harmful, difficult people and beings in our life. Eventually, to perfect this practice, this heart of metta, to open to this, the full beauty of a loving heart, we will be asked to include them in our metta practice. But it's, it's not something that we have to rush to or demand of ourselves or expect of ourselves. It's a very gradual process. And the energy and the effort required must be supported by understanding. Sayadaw's understanding of that situation gave me the confidence to continue practice. Confidence is also a necessary ingredient. We may not fully believe that our thoughts of metta, our wishes, are actually reaching the mark and having an effect. But it doesn't take much to see in our own life in a very simple situation that if we are kind to someone, they don't make trouble for us. That's, that's pretty obvious. You know, it's, you know, when the dog is chasing you to bite, give them a bone and they stop. You know, it's, it's, it's not so difficult to see. 
I had to repeat my understanding or Upandita's understanding to myself many times in order to be able to continue because images of the brutality would keep coming up in my mind. By not denying that, not fearing that, not running away from it, but saying, yes, this too, okay, that's the behavior, this is the being, let's wish the being happiness without condoning the behavior. Seeing things as they are, a passionate valuing of the being over the behavior. Another condition of metta is taking an active concern or an active interest in in supporting another's life, their growth, their maturation, their um, awakening in some way. When we know the source of our own unhappiness, deeply see into what causes us distress, fear, insecurity, then we know what causes another the same. And if we have found a way to be with the fear and insecurity and the challenges, the difficulties in our life, we can share that with another. That is part of metta also. Our ability to respond to their needs. We have a 16-year-old daughter living at home. And she recently got her driver's license. For those of you who remember what it was like to get your driver's license or have a child at home, you know that at that age, they want nothing more than to be out of the house. And if they got the car and are out of the house, they're happy. (laughs) That's their idea of happiness. Well, Therese um, finds innumerable, just incessant reasons for needing the car to go somewhere. And for the first month or more, my immediate cow path of the mind response was, no. It's just, I didn't, I didn't give it a thought. Just, no. No. Can I go to the library? Can I go here? Can I go see someone? No, 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 no. It didn't feel very good. But what I was not seeing, not opening to, I just didn't consider her needs, where she was coming from. It wasn't that I was being punitive. I was just closed. But I realized that my caring for her had to, had to change. That my saying no 
was one type of care. But it wasn't very skillful. And so in the opening to how can I care for her in that situation, I got in touch with my reasons for saying no. I was afraid. She's going to wreck the car. Uh, who's she going to go? Who's she going to be with? What are they going to do? <laughs> what time is she going to get home? Or at least, what time is she going to say she's going to get home? If you have a teenager, you know what I'm talking about. They they live in a world of their own. So I had a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety, and I wanted to be in control, and I was restless and uh, worried. That aversion was preventing my caring for her skillfully. My fear, my anxiety, my worry prevented metta, caring, loving. Not because I was doing something wrong, I was caring, wanted to care, skillfully, but because caring makes us vulnerable. When you open to another, you make yourself vulnerable. You allow yourself to feel what they're feeling and your response. You let go of control. You don't hold it so tightly that nothing grows. And when something grows, when something opens, whether it's a teenager or a heart or whatever it is, there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some fear. There's going to be some insecurity. And so in your practice, you may notice opening to some of these individuals that we asked you to open to, yourself, a benefactor, a friend, someone who's in pain, someone who's causing pain, a group, a pet. Sometimes we, in, in that opening, in that turning to and allowing them into our heart, we feel uncomfortable feelings. We don't live in isolation. We don't want to live defended against the world. We want to open. We have to take the risk. Metta or love is a risky business. There's no guarantee that comes with it. There's no guarantee that your love and care is even going to be respected or wanted or noticed. Yet that's our practice. She was with or whatever. But I did. So in my... The factor that most made me willing to change and to consider her request was she was so 
excited. She was so happy. And when I would say no, it was such a defeat. It was such a blow. It was such a, an undermining of her being in some way. But I had to acknowledge myself, to myself, my fear, and acknowledge it to her. Acknowledge my anxiety and tell her. And through that, we were able to dialogue to a set of conditions that we both could agree to. You know, you can go out to this area of the island with these people for this long. Okay, she could agree to that. I have no idea if that's what she did. (laughs) But at least she was home on time. My understanding of what I needed, my fear, my anxiety, and in sharing that with her, helped to support my care and love for her. That wisdom, maybe in this case parental wisdom, is necessary to protect my practice of loving-kindness. It's a lot to ask to care for someone when they are out of our control. And to be willing to open to those feelings that come. My phrase for her was, may you drive safe. Her joy at getting the car, going out, being independent, developing some confidence, self-confidence, and establishing a feeling of trust in Kamala and I was really a joy to behold. Sometimes I really felt like falling in love, seeing this blossoming person, you know, take on the responsibility of caring for me in return and my fears and my anxiety and letting her care for me in that way. Sometimes, you know, loving is very easy. Or we, you know, we develop love and we share, yes, may you be happy. But let that come back also. Let yourself, as Sharon guided us in the early days of retreat, sit in the middle of your circle of friends and hear their love and appreciation and care for you. That is another practice. After she'd been out, after Teresa had been out in the car several times, I asked her one day, I said, um, have you had any close calls with the car? (laughs) And she said, yeah, I have. I said, don't tell me, I don't want to know. (laughs) So, 
seeing another as they truly are, responding in a way that nurtures them, passionately valuing them as the being that they are, not this, not necessarily their behavior, and then acting. You know, we have to um, put some action behind our thoughts, our well-wishing. Metta is really appreciating and acting on it. Not just a passive um, good feeling. It's not just an emotional response. It's an action. And every intention that we arouse in our mind to wish another to be happy is an action. And every movement in our life towards nurturing another is an action. A friend of mine has said that the urge to love is greater than wanting to be loved. When we follow that urge to love, we join with the rest of life. We connect. We share our life with one another, with all beings. And when we do, we step out of our small, narrow, heavily defended, and isolated world. After I'd been in Burma about four years, in Rangoon, through the revolution and the first year of Aung San Suu Kyi's house arrest, I'd done a lot of metta and a lot of vipassana, and was ready to leave the city and go into the forest, get away from the constant construction and the busyness around this this big monastery. So I had this uh, idea, you know, it was kind of formed by uh, the Ryokan poems that I'd read, off in some isolated hermitage in the jungle somewhere and uh, blissfully uh, communing with nature day after day. This poem by Ryokan really accurately expresses my imagination. (laughs) It's quiet. My little three-mat hut The whole day long, not a soul to be seen. I sit and meditate by my lonely window. The only sound, the endlessly falling leaves. So I inquired whether it was possible to go to the jungle of Burma and practice. And due to the political instability in the country, no. So I said, okay, I'll go to Thailand. So I made arrangements with one of my supporters in Thailand to find a place in one of the monasteries in the jungle of Thailand where I could go to practice. So they found this place over near the Cambodian border. And I took this long bus ride and a long dusty taxi ride into this little village 
way out, I don't even know where it was on the map. But I, they took me to this monastery where there were just two monks, two Thai monks, neither one of whom spoke a word of English. <laughs> and there was a hundred or hundred fifty acres, and there were several little cabins on it. So they found me one little cabin, and the person who took me there said, Goodbye, I'll see you in three months. I thought it was bliss. I could just imagine how nice it was going to be. Not having, I don't speak Thai either. So, got in my little cabin, and what I had for a cabin, we wouldn't really call a tool shed. It's just a little, a little bungalow. I mean, it is small. Couldn't, couldn't stand up in it. The roof wasn't high enough. It's up on stilts to keep away from the creepy crawlies in the jungle. And it just had one window with no, no glass. In one door there was just uh, some boards on hinges. No running water, no electricity, no mechanical anything. So I settled in for my three months of silent bliss. <laughs> I soon discovered that ants were sharing my kuti. They, had, uh, they were the previous tenants, now co-tenants. I had a squirrel that lived in the rafters. I had a gecko that lived behind the, win- the, uh, the window shutter. And these geckos make this unbelievably loud, chattering noise, regularly, (laughs) which can be heard for hundreds of yards in the jungle. At night, because it was so hot during the day, I left my windows and doors open, the bats were flying through the house. (laughs) So close that I could feel the the breeze of their wings on my, my shaven head. During the day, the wild chickens in the jungle were underneath the cabin, scratching around the dirt and clucking. Screech owls came out at night to feed. And much to my surprise, snakes can climb trees. (laughs) Needless to say, I was disappointed. <laughs> my unfulfilled expectations were staring me in the face. My aversion was rampant. I hated those animals. I really resented them, disturbing my silent practice. As long as I lived in my fantasy, I was miserable. I could dwell in that aversion, disappointment, resentment. But as soon as I turned my attention to the way things actually are, the way things actually were right then, it was okay. There was a symphony of sound going on, day and night. (laughs) But that's not so painful as resentment and disappointment. A lot of noise is easy to be with. Resentment and disappointment you can't get away from. 
until you let go, until you drop out of your fantasy, the way you want things to be, and tune into the way things really are. Sharon mentioned earlier that the practice has to be simple enough for a seven-year-old to understand. Seven-year-olds don't live in fantasy so much. They are in the world. They're right there doing their... They don't have uh, some great big plan for the way the day is going to go. Their disappointments may come and leave. But I remember that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of monks who were who had gone off to a forest to practice for three months, like I had. But they were disturbed and bothered by all the spirits that lived in the forest, and they were afraid. So when they came running back to the Buddha, frightened to live in that forest, the Buddha said, you go back there, you practice metta. Those spirits will be kind to you. They'll leave you alone. So they did. So that's what I did. Started practice metta for these animals. Then I really saw that I was just living in this other community. I wasn't in the monastery with monks. I was in the world with these other beings. You know, May I be at ease with conditions in my life, many of which are other beings, noise, symphony of sound. But it was a delight to be included in that community. If we have expectations, we will surely be disappointed. It's helpful to notice what our expectations are of this practice. We may not even have known that we have them. We may believe that practicing metta is going to be like falling in love. Sometimes it might be, and sometimes it might not be. We may have other expectations that somehow we're going to leave here with that fantastically open, spacious heart that we've heard about or read about from someone. Exposing our expectations is not easy, but it is a necessary part of practice so that we can actually let go of the fantasies we live in and live with. And only by letting go of those fantasies can we develop the confidence and trust in an open and spacious, loving heart. The practice we do here, the silent practice of cultivating an open heart, a loving heart, a caring heart, spacious heart, a heart that can allow 
all beings in his hard work. Just a call to mind and to have the wish is difficult enough. But our work in the world demands that we act on that also. That we put our open, spacious, loving heart to work. Fearless. Fearlessly approaching and acting on what we have cultivated. Shortly after the military had taken over in Burma, they called themselves SLORC, the State Law and Order Restoration Committee. Aung San Suu Kyi was giving them an awful hard time. She was talking about democracy and they were talking about fear. And so they wanted to get her out of the country. So they passed this um, law, this edict, that said that all foreigners had to leave the country. Aung San Suu Kyi's husband is English, and they figured if they could get him out of the country, she'd go with him. So the date was given something like October 31st or something, when all foreigners had to be out of the country. And I was happy in the monastery and been there for a few years and really wanted to stay there. And I didn't want to leave. I didn't see that I was any threat to them. And so I, I felt, after having done my practice, or in doing my practice of metta for them, that I really didn't have a personal issue with any one of them. I didn't approve of their behavior. But as an individual being, I wanted them to be happy. And what's it to them if I stay? <laughs> anyway, so I felt this at easeness in my heart. And I decided to write a letter to the general who had been appointed the director of home and religious affairs. His name was General Ufon Min. So I wrote this letter telling him who I was, what I'd been doing, and what I wanted to do. And I figured I was just going to go downtown and give it to him and see what he said. But I knew that to travel in, in town, you have to get a permit. You have to go to the local uh, suburb where you live and get a permit from the head policeman or whoever he is in order to travel to downtown Rangoon. I mean, it's really oppressive there. So I summoned a boy in the monastery and I said, get a taxi, I want to go to the local police station and get a permit to go downtown. So okay, we got the taxi and we went off to the local station and the whole station was heavily guarded with soldiers. And I was just in my robes and sandals and had my letter. <laughs> so I went, better pattering up the stairs, into the, the place where you meet the receptionist. And there were these two guys, military guys, with their machine guns and their holsters and all, standing there. And I walked up to them, and when they saw me coming, a really amazing, a really beautiful thing happened. They put down their guns, took off their holsters, and put them aside, and invited me to sit down and have a cup of tea. 
I was, I was really amazed. Because everything I'd heard, everything I believed about those military men was bad. That they were really inhuman. Really insensitive. Brutal. And yet, individually, they're not. It was a really uh, powerful statement to me of the power of metta. I had no wish to harm them in any way. And I think they knew that. I mean, I... <laughs> what was I, I, mean, I going to do? I got my signature, but they told me that it was impossible to travel downtown. Okay. There were roadblocks. You just you couldn't travel at all in Burma, in Rangoon at the time. So I was back in the monastery, had my letter, and couldn't deliver it. And the word got around the monastery that I was trying to get a letter to General Ufo Mint. And one day, the dietitian in the dining room where I used to eat came to my room, and she said, I heard you have a letter that you'd like to deliver to General Ufo Mint. And I said, yes, I... I'd like to stay in the monastery. I'd like to stay in the country and continue practicing. And she said, well, my niece married General Ufo Mint's son. And I know him very well. She said, if you give me the letter, I'll take it to him. So I said, oh, great. I gave her the letter, and she took it to him that night. And while he read it, she stayed there. And when he got done reading it, he said, I'll give him permission to stay. And she came back and told me, go through the usual application, and he will see that you get permission to stay. Everyone else, every other foreigner in the country, had to leave, except for a few embassy people. And I stayed in Burma. They say that one of the benefits of metta is that you will not be harmed by weapons or bombs or guns or poisons. And I have to believe that this is a 20th century manifestation of that benefit of metta. This process of growing in loving-kindness or blossoming aloha It's a gradual process. It's something that we do for ourselves, with ourselves, with each other, and eventually towards all beings. It's not easy. We can't demand it. We have to cultivate it, work at it. Nisargadatta Maharaj says, all you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain in search of pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I ask of you is this. Make love of yourself perfect 
deny yourself nothing. Give yourself eternity and infinity and discover that you do not need them. <laughs>